The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Would you... Sit, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against my, uh, myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his com- com- commendation from God. So far the reading of his word. Every four years... We are forced to ask the question, what makes a great leader? Character or competence? Experience or change? Eloquence or sincerity? Charisma or gravitas? We hear about these questions often, but this question of leadership is not just a modern question, but seems to have been on the minds of the Corinthians as well. Disunity in the church that dominates this epistle involves a number of different elements not the least of which was choosing a leader worth following. Some followed Apollos, who seemed to represent the ideals of the time, eloquence and wisdom and presence. Some chose Cephas for his experience, for he saw and he knew the Lord. But Paul, what does he have to offer, really? They seem to have been unimpressed with Paul's lack of eloquence and wisdom and his appearance of meekness and weakness before them uh, concerned them uh, to no end. As a result, what we see in the book of Corinthians is a disunity surrounding and following after different leaders, and there's a decidedly anti-Paul feeling about the church in Corinth. It's at this point Paul defends himself, and he begins with verse 1 in chapter 4 when he says, this is how one should regard us. How should people regard Paul and Apollos and Cephas and other leaders of the church? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Following chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, where Paul spoke of ministers as diakonoi, he employs two new metaphors and descriptions of the leaders of the church, often translated servants and almost universally translated stewards. Much can be said about these individual metaphors, I'm sure. We can say that the word servant often means an assistant or junior officer. And in classical Greek, it means an under rower in a ship. We can also point out that stewards usually implies managing a household, often by a slave or even an estate manager, someone who handles the money and affairs of a household. However, we want to focus on two implications of these two images. One, delegated authority and second, divine accountability. When Paul uses these phrases, that he is indeed a servant and a steward, he wants us to remember that Paul is himself not a master. What he has is authority, but this authority is not of his own. It was delegated 
to him, and it was merely given to him. No doubt that these were positions of some authority. There were no, they were no ordinary servants, as you can see, but servants of Christ. And of course, they were entrusted with something very precious, precious uh, as precious as the mysteries of God. Make no mistake, however, this authority they possessed was given to them. It's not something that they inherited and they wrought in in and of themselves. Paul was not an independent guru or an extraordinarily gifted leader, but a mere servant whose authority was delegated to him by his master, Jesus Christ. As servants, they had no right of self-determination, but they were given a task by their master. As someone who received authority and not something that he himself created, Here, his responsibility was to carry out the responsibility given to him. And Paul speaks of one specific responsibility when he says, to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Following what he said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse uh, 7, when he said, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Paul is not saying that the gospel is mysterious, but reminding the mystery and wisdom-seeking Corinthians that the real mystery is not something found here, but it's something that God has provided. It's about the plan of salvation that God has begun that was hidden for all ages in the past and was now revealed in Christ Jesus. In an age craving for wisdom, this is the revelation of God's wisdom preached by Paul, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. To another church that sought wisdom and knowledge, as the Corinthians did, Paul, in writing to the Colossians, he says this in chapter 1, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we recently saw a book that borrows the title from these phrases that follow, Him We Proclaim. For he realizes the mystery that these people were seeking seeking, were being sought in the wrong places. The ultimate mystery that he desired to proclaim, that he was given responsibility to proclaim, was not found in the world or the cultic mysteries of the time, was found solely in Christ Jesus, his Lord. So when he refers to himself and other leaders of the time that many people considered incredibly extraordinary, that many people sought to follow, he reminds them that they are mere servants and stewards, people who possess delegated authority, derived authority, authority not of their own, but authority merely given to them, important no less, but yet ultimately dependent upon the master to whom he owes his allegiance. So when he begins by pointing out that he is a servant and a steward, and others like him who are leading the church are servants and stewards, he's reminding us that as pastors and as individuals who seek to be great leaders in the church, that we indeed are dependent. We also have delegated authority. We merely possess derived authority given to us by our master. But it's not only that we have delegated authority, but he also points out that the accountability system that's built in for the the metaphors also imply not only authority, but also accountability. Being given this awesome task, having received these responsibilities, we owe this responsibility to someone. And we have this divine accountability that sits before us. 
That he possesses delegated authority then grounds Paul's next point. If Paul and his fellow apostles are mere servants and stewards, possessing authority not of their own, two questions naturally follow. First, to whom are they accountable? And second, on what basis will they be judged? First, the latter question first. The basis of their judgment as servants and stewards is simply this, trustworthiness. As 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 points out, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. As stewards and servants, what's required of them? Simply trustworthiness. Not eloquence, not wisdom, not one's presence and strength before con- a congregation, not leadership as defined now, nor even success, perhaps, that many people seek. Here, what's required is simply being found trustworthy. The word rendered trustworthy in English is pistos, the same word for faithful. It speaks of servants who are faithful to the wishes and desires of his or her master and trustworthy in his administration of the given task. The only question worth asking is simply this. Is the person who is a servant and a steward worthy of the trust that has been placed in his care. He has no right to determine his course of action. He has no right to determine what message he'll proclaim. He has no right to determine exactly how the Lord desires that his task be carried out. In fact, the only requirement placed upon a servant and a steward is that he be faithful in carrying out the trust that has been given to him in the first place. And for Paul, that is the only basis for judgment. That's the only reason why one who is considered a servant or steward would be considered being a worthy person. It's nothing like the way we conceive of success or trustworthiness. It's not the way we think of what a great leader looks like. In an age infatuated with success in some sort, whether it be the size of our churches, whether it be the, 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 the power and the passion with which we speak, or the, the, the amount of uh, degrees behind our names, here Paul seems to speak much more simply about our responsibility. As servants and stewards of the mysteries of God, our responsibility is simply this. And the question we ought to ask is simply this. Are you trustworthy? Have you faithfully carried out the task that God has placed before you? Opposite of what is normal, uh, during the summer, I devoured a book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor by D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, in speaking of his father, who was a a pastor in the French-speaking Canada, as a person who is originally an English-speaking person, he went into a region as a missionary, basically, and started to preach in French, uh, hoping that this area, which was predominantly Catholic, can actually receive the, the Protestant evangelistic gospel. In, in his efforts, he spent decades there. But he will be, uh, th- that is, D.A. Carson will be the first one to tell you, his father was never really considered successful in the eyes of the world. The church never really grew very big. In fact, it was so difficult, both financially and emotionally, after some decades, his father in his 50s gave up. Gave up in the sense that despite the fact that he continued to serve the church with various gifts that he possessed, he no longer pastored a church after 20 or 30 somewhat years of ministry. 
And, and, and to this dad that he remembers, uh, he, he presents this book, who's now already passed away. But in his recollection, his father, despite the fact that the world may consider him a failure, for he never pastored a big church, he was never really well-known outside of his own circles. But in the mind of D.A. Carson, his dad was a famous pastor, for he did what a pastor was supposed to do. He was faithful in his task of caring for his flock and preaching the gospel in a very faithful way. It's contrary to our common notion of what success looks like. It's contrary to the way we judge the success or failures of pastors. But here, Paul's point is very relevant to us as we prepare our ministry in the future. That in terms of how we view ourselves and how the world views us, the simple question is not about the size of our congregation, not about the successes in terms of all the accolades that we receive in the world here, but simply, have you been faithful to the task that God has given to you? So in this divine accountability, what is questioned is not the successes measured quantifiably, but the success measured by God himself. And this is the latter point that's just as important. For as he points out here, and this is the thrust of his argument in these verses, the final judge is not found on this side of glory. When the question is asked, who will decide whether one has been trustworthy, he points out very simply, not the church, and more specifically for Paul, not the Corinthians. These Corinthians who are decidedly so anti-Paul and who have been criticizing him for his lack of eloquence and presence, here the Corinthians seem to have judged Paul already as someone unworthy, unworthy to be followed. But that is of no concern to Paul. And in fact, he goes on to add, in a surprising moment, he includes, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul is not aware of anything in himself that he did wrong, but ultimately, even if he did, it really has no consequence. For Paul, the church and self are, as one scholar calls it, two illegitimate tribunals of judgment. Paul is not trying to be flippant or arrogant about what he's saying, but trying to put things in proper perspective. Ministry is not a popularity contest or an exercise in winning friends and influencing people. Nor is it about self-discovery. Feeling bad or good about one's ministry may have some value to the pastor, but ultimately it has no ultimate significance. Because the only judgment that's at issue here, and the only person who's the judge over our ministry, it's the Lord. And he points this out in verse 5 when he simply says, it is the Lord who judges me. He's defending himself against the Corinthians who already judged him as unworthy and he says that's of no consequence for your judgment and my judgment of myself really does not matter for the only judge that matters is the Lord who is my master. What master thinks is the only thing that he cares about and the only judgment that counts is the final one. The new reality in Christ has already begun, and the present-day preoccupation with human judgments is passing away, giving proper place to the judgment of God. Paul then simply leaves his success and failures to God. 
what the Corinthians are doing in judging the apostle is premature and simply beyond their pay grade. The day will come when the Lord himself will come to judge his servants and his stewards. What's interesting about this verse is that one can sense in Paul's writing a tinge of confidence, despite the fact that if I had said what he just said, I would be in fear. Really? God would judge me for my faithfulness and my trustworthiness? I will be overwhelmed with anxiety, for I know, more than anyone else can say, my failures in my own ministry. But he says this at the end of his section when he says that each one will receive commendation from God. The word translated commendation from God here is variously translated praise, recognition, or commendation. From where comes his confidence? From where comes this tinge of optimism on the part of Paul? who says the judgment of the world doesn't matter, the judgment of the church doesn't matter, my own judgment of myself doesn't ultimately matter. The only judgment that counts is the Lord's, and yet he stands before God with confidence. Why? Because he's the very one who penned these words in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our God. This faithful God, who will sustain us to the end in Christ Jesus our Lord, reminds us in chapter 3, verse 9, we who are his servants and stewards are his fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers, doing his bidding, borrowing his strength. For there is nothing in and of ourselves that will bring out the power or the wisdom or the knowledge to carry out our task. But it's only from the faithful God who is faithful to us until the end who works with us. For we are servants and stewards who are fellow workers of God, Who in us we find God who is at work? He who has been faithful to us from the beginning, the promise is, will be faithful to us until the end. It is this promise that he penned, he holds on to. And when that day comes and the judgment throne is before us and our master and our king and our judge sees us for what we have done, We stand before God not with fear for our failures and our uh, temporary successes, but we stand confident in the place of Christ Jesus our Lord, for we know God sees us as our Father in heaven who saved us in Christ Jesus our Lord, who who has been faithful to us, who has been our strength and our guide and our wisdom as we carry out this task. We are able to be faithful and trustworthy because we know that our God, who is our master, is faithful and trustworthy with us. This is why, friends, in short, what Paul reminds us in these passages is that the ministry is not about us. It's not about you or I. The task to which we are called, the message we are to proclaim, it's not about us, it's not about our message but it's about the Lord, our master. And this is why he can exhort us in simply saying, be faithful, 
be trustworthy and know that the Lord who himself is faithful will be faithful to you. May this encourage us as we go before God in our ministry in the future and now. May we rely not upon ourselves but in the strength of God who will continue to be and who promises to be faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, in your spirit, teach us to be faithful to you. Strengthen us to be faithful to you. For we rely not upon our own strength and wisdom, which often fail us, but we rely upon you. May you receive all the glory and honor, for we are mere servants and stewards before your sight. May we be faithful to the task that we hold, which is to proclaim your gospel with diligence and boldness each and every single day. We thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.